I'm really excited to be here. As he said, I'm Josh, and I do work in Ames. And after like getting to be in class with Andrea and Joey for the last two years, I have just come to see how much they love you guys. And I'm like super excited to come here because I know the way that they care about you, and I just want to know the people that they care about. So I'm really excited. Um, today, we're going to be continuing in our series going through Daniel, uh, and we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 5. Um, and specifically, we're going to be looking at it with like understanding how can we learn a little bit more about what a holy courage actually looks like? What is a holy courage that God gives us? Um, and in the, in the previous weeks, Matt Yoder and, and Joey have been going through and filling out like a good definition of courage, kind of working from a baseline of courage is strength in the face of adversity. So that's like a baseline idea of what courage is. And then um, a few other one-liners that they threw out is courage is persevering in the face of pressure. Or courage is making wise decisions in everyday situations. Or courage is being willing to die for your faith. These are all really, really helpful ways for us to think about courage um, and, and the way Christians should act uh, since we've been saved by Christ. But, but this week, we're going to look at something a little bit different when we look at courage because the story you're going to read or we're going to go through isn't necessarily the most inspiring um, of courage, as you're, you're going to see. Um, we're actually going to look at three myths about courage. Three myths of courage. Um, in Daniel chapter 5, it's, it's a pretty obscure passage. You might have heard it maybe like in Sunday school. Like you hear about God coming down and writing on the wall and like showing power through his hand, literally etching some inscriptions on the wall to an evil king. And you likely haven't heard a sermon preached on it since. Um, and I'm very interested in this passage because I've been able to study it and look at it. But in order to kind of like help us get into the, the frame of mind for where this is going, we need a mini history lesson because this chapter uh, doesn't directly follow what happens in the chapter beforehand. So let's do a quick history lesson here. Uh, King Belshazzar, that's not Belshazzar, which is the name that they give to Daniel. Belshazzar, Belteshazzar, sorry. I'm, I apologize for the Babylonian uh, naming conventions. Uh, kind of my bad. Should not have done that. Um, but Belshazzar's, we're going to see, isn't much of a role model to follow in the way of courage. He's more of someone that we can look at, see, like screw up, and then try to do the opposite. <laughs> um, and so his situation, what's happening right now in Daniel 5, is he's the current king of Babylon. Belshazzar is the king of Babylon. And when I say king of Babylon, it's a little misleading. He's actually number two. His dad is the true king. Uh, Nabonius, but he's out leaving for some reason. He's not actually present, and he's left Belshazzar in charge. So he's ruling over the kingdom in place of his father, and the Babylonian Empire is kind of in shaky waters. Like, right now, the Medo-Persian Empire is, like, bearing down on them. And you might have heard of King Darius. He's going to come up just next, uh, in the next chapter, chapter 6. Uh, but the Medo-Persian Empire is really strong, really powerful, and it's, a, like, probably freaking out everyone in the whole kingdom. And so Belshazzar, who doesn't actually deserve to be king, is in the place of the king. He's all the powers in his hands, and he knows that there's this huge empire looming right outside of his door. And to top all that off, he remembers a prophecy. Back in Daniel 2, when Daniel interprets uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, there's, there's this dream of this statue, and it talks about this, like, stage of, like, the gold and then the silver and then the bronze kingdoms that are to come one after the next. 
and he realizes, wait, Nebuchadnezzar's done. There's going to be a new kingdom that's going to take over ours, that's going to reign in our place. So he, one, sees the kingdom that's out there, looming with power and fear, inspiring into his probably heart, like deep insecurity, and he knows about this prophecy from the God of Israel. He's shaking in his boots. He knows he doesn't deserve the position he has, and he can just see the, the pain that's about to come. He can see his failure in front of him. I, I kind of, there's one moment in my life where I felt this more than anything else, um, and it was when I was playing baseball in high school. Um, I just got brought up to the varsity team in the summer, and uh, I, I was a junior, so I was a little young for the team, and we were in this tournament against teams from all over the country, and we had no business being there. We were not that good of a team. We were a pretty good team, but not that good. And we were playing against a really, really good team from Missouri. And the coaches decided to put me in as pitcher. And this is my first ever appearance. And I just know, like, like I'm just going to get absolutely smoked. And I feel, like, terrible. I'm like, why are you giving me this kind of authority? This is bad news. And I get up on the mound, and I have one good inning. I have two good innings. And then... Uh, I walk a dude, a guy crushes a double off me, and the next guy hits like a 420-foot home run to dead center. And I'm like, oof. That's kind of how uh, Belshazzar probably feels right now. He's like, I know I'm about to get absolutely crushed by the Medo-Persian Empire, but I, I, I just got to like be strong. I got to be courageous right now. So let's look to Daniel chapter 5, and we're going to start reading in verse 1, and we're going to actually see how Belshazzar handles this very uh, adverse situation in his life. What actually does he do? So starting in verse 1, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of a thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, he brought, that he and his uh, kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, one quick note is it says that uh, Belshazzar was Nebuchadnezzar's son. That's like what he's talking about. is like, oh, he was the previous king. He was like, okay, so he's like the son is like inheriting the kingdom kind of a thing. He wasn't actually biologically Nebuchadnezzar's son. That's just an important reference. Um, but what we see is that Nebu- or, uh, Belshazzar, when he is in this situation, he decides to throw like this huge party. And he invites a ton of people in. He invites all the most wealthy, the most powerful people that he can think of. And he gives them a ton of wine. And they just have basically like a really sinful evening. It was certainly a drunken orgy of kind. And you might think it's just a a run-of-the-mill drunken orgy. But it's actually a little bit more worse than that even. Um, If you look closely, you'll notice that the things that he does specifically is he's like, I wonder what I can do. You know what? Yeah, let's get the gold and the silver that, like, this god of the prophecy that I'm not a huge fan of. Yeah, let's get his gold and his silver, and let's drink out of those cups, and then let's worship different gods. He, like, goes into the situation. He's like, I don't like what I've heard. I don't like to hear what God has planned for my life and for my kingdom and for my rule, so I'm going to show up. You know what? 
I'm king. I'm in charge of everyone here. All these lords, all these powerful people, yeah, I'm in charge of them. Every single one of them. And you know what? I'm charge over the temple. I'm, I'm actually king over Yahweh, his people. They're in my rule. Belshazzar is all about his own power and his own strength. So what happens when he says, this is where I'm king. This is my kingdom. Let's look on, starting in verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite of the the lampstand. And the king saw that the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation, they shall be clothed with purple, and they shall have a chain of gold around his neck, and they shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they couldn't read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. And his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. God writing on the wall in this scenario is like the hold on, the party needs to stop kind of a moment. It's like when I was back in high school and my parents would walk downstairs as we were watching a movie and they'd catch the, like, the totally normal movie in the middle of like, the one bad scene that I really didn't want them to see. It's like, oh, come on, now? Now is when you have to show up? Like, this is terrible, okay? That's the kind of feeling that he's having, except probably a lot worse than that, you know? It's, like, terrible. And also, my parents were really good at that. My dad, it was, like, divinely orchestrated or something. He promises he didn't try to do it, but it was incredible. Um, Anyways, in the midst of Belshazzar's insecurity, covered up by external lavishness and claims to power, God shows up. God's hand writes on the wall, Belshazzar is petrified, and his face turns pale, his knees are knocking, and then he offered everything that he has to offer in order to regain his control over the situation. He desperately wants his power back. He sees a hand right on the wall, and he knows he can't control that, but he wants to know what the words are so that he can be back in the driver's seat. He needs to be king. He would do anything to regain his sense of security and power. And at this point, um, the queen, who is not his wife, his wife and all of his concubines would have been there. The queen, his mother, um, comes in and she says, you're not going to get any good interpretation from, from these people. You actually need to look to Daniel, the one who has interpreted for us for the last 60 years. We need to turn to him, the one who has the spirit of God in him. And So uh, let's turn to verse 13. This is where he actually brings in Daniel and then has his first conversation with him. I'm just going to read straight through to the end of the chapter, starting in verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I've heard that you have the spirit of the gods in you and that the light of understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men, the enchanters, they've been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read writings and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple, 
and you shall have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. I could, could have camped on that for a long time, actually. I could have camped on this idea of Daniel saying, no, 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 God's going to interpret your dream for you and not. But because of like just the amount of time, that's a cool point, kind of a one-off, but I can't really get to it. So just notice how Daniel's like, actually, I'm not going to do your interpretation. God will. Like, you think that I'm powerful? No, no, no. No, no, no. Yahweh is powerful, right? Okay. Back in it, back in it. Verse 18. O king, the most high God known, uh, gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all the peoples, the nations, the languages, they trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened, so that, his, uh, so that he dealt proudly. He was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind. His mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind, and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son Belshazzar, you've not humbled your heart, although you knew all of this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. You and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and of gold and of bronze, iron, wood, and stone which do not see or hear, but now the way of God, whose hand is in your breath and who are all around your, uh, in whose are all your ways, have, you have not honored. Then in his presence, the hand was sent and the writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and has brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and to the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command. Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. But that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So who's, uh, who's inspired to be courageous today, guys? <laughs> I, uh, you know, you kind of get done with that. And I, I kind of want some, like, David and Goliath stuff, you know? Just like, come on, give me a good win. You know, I, I just want to see, like a, like, a big old win here. But that, that's not actually what we get in this passage. We get the hard stuff. We get a really difficult passage about someone who tries to stand up to God and gets crushed. And I, that's why we need to look at a couple of myths about courage. What is actually courageous? The first myth that I want to take a look at is this idea that all courage is made equal. The first myth is the idea that all courage is made equal. When we look at the story that was told here from Belshazzar's perspective, and you hear about how all of the odds were stacked against them, about all of like the oppression of this evil Medo-Persian empire, and like, oh man, like, yeah, that's hard. And then there's this like weird prophecy that he's going to be condemned and crushed. It's like, 
you, you could tell the story. You could spin it and like start writing it as though he was a protagonist. You could be like Belshazzar. He's going to up. He's going to rise up. He's going to overcome the odds. He's going to be strong in the face of adversity. He's going to be the powerful one. Like I would watch that movie if it had maybe a good enough trailer. Um, but it's like legitimately, it, it seems like, yeah, we could tell the story from his perspective. Why isn't he the courageous one in this? Why isn't he being courageous? Here's the problem, guys. All courage isn't actually made equal. Just because you have some adversity in your life doesn't mean it's courageous for you to be the one that destroys it. There are a lot of ways we can be wrong with our courage. And just a couple simple things. Like, for me, it would be delusional for me to be like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go. I'm going to go to Florida, and I'm going to lay on the beach, and I'm not going to put on sunscreen, and I'm going to get tan. Like, I could say the odds are stacked against me. They're stacked. You know, I got red skin. I got red hair. I got white skin. It's not going to happen. I could go and do that and be like, I'm going to be courageous. You're going to, when I come out bronze on the other side, you guys are all going to be like, Josh is a hero. But that's actually not courageous. It's delusional. It's like idiotic, you know? Just, just because I want to go up against the odds doesn't make it right for me to go up against the odds. Maybe in another way we could think about it is that we tell a lot of stories. We tell a lot of, like, stories about courageous acts in history, uh, particularly a lot of stories about, like, war. And when, when we look at, like, World War II, we, we've got a lot of cool movies about World War II. I can even think of, like, Hacksaw Ridge, like, a guy just, like, being super courageous, consistently saving people. And, like, like wow, what a, what a true hero. How courageous is that? Super brave, overcomes the odds, great movie, 10 out of 10 recommend, very intense. Uh, but we don't tell the courageous acts of the Germans. You know, we, we don't talk about the courageous, uh, you know, bravery of Nazi Germany. It even sounds wrong to just say those words in the same sentence because we know something instinctively not all courage is created equal. If you're courageous for the wrong thing, it's not courage. It's evil. It's wrong. The people in Nazi Germany, they were standing up for something. They were fighting for their families. They were fighting for their homes. But they were also fighting for deep injustice. They were fighting, ultimately, against God. Courage cannot be opposed to the God of the universe. It's an oxymoron. It doesn't work that way. When we think that actually we're going to make our own courage because we've got something in our lives that we need to overcome, and we do it blindly, we might be walking into a trap in the same way that Belshazzar was. And I know we don't have, like, a lot in common with Belshazzar. Like, he lived thousands of years ago. He was king over his actual nation. He has a weird name, like Belshazzar. It's like, like there's, like, very little tying us together. But something that does tie us together is we have a deep desire to be in control and to be safe. We all want that. We all desperately want to be in control. We love the power that we have. So what's your kingdom? Maybe you're not king over real land, but you're king over something. What's the thing that makes you feel safe? What's the thing that gives you security? For me, I, I think my kingdom is just like a broad like control of my future. 
You know, I'm in this church network where we send people willy-nilly to all around the country, and it's like, where is they going to go next? I don't know. All, out of, like, my friends on staff, the people that were in my class, zero of them are still at Cornerstone. They're gone. They get sent out. They're gone. Really fun. And it's usually, like, fast. And, like, whoa, now they're in Florida. Or, like, whoa, now they're going to Bloomington, Indiana. Or, whoa, now they're in UNI. It's, like, crazy. Like, super fast. And for me, the temptation is to be like, I need to take control over my future. I need to know where I'm going to be next. I need to know how to have the right conversations, to put myself in the right place, to look better to the right people so that I am safe. But that's my kingdom. What, what's yours? Is it your family? Any any discomfort, any strife that your family faces that's a moment of deep insecurity and worry and existential crisis? Is it your job? You lose your job and you think, I need to do everything I can to regain my job so that my status isn't hurt, so that my bank account isn't hurt, so that I actually look like the person that I should be, so that I'm, I'm the one that's actually in control. Or maybe it's just like straight up money. When the stock market takes a turn down, you're thinking about all the ways you can recoup the losses that you've, that you've made. And the only thing in your heart is like, I need to figure out how I can regain my control. I, I do want to pause here for one second, though. And just like think about these things. I'm not saying it's bad to like pursue family unity in the midst of strife. I'm not saying it's bad to even try to like recoup gains or losses in the stock market. What's bad is that we do these things because we want to be the king over them. It's bad when we want to be king. And this leads actually directly into the second myth about courage that I think will kind of give us some more clarity as we look back on the first one in a second is uh, courage means holding on to your power. It was alluded to. The questions that we can think about are like... um, are you trying to do these things for, for your own power or for God's glory? And to see where this comes in the text, I, I want to look at Daniel's rebuke that he gives to Belshazzar before he interprets the, the writing on the wall. So let's, let's look at verse 18. We're just going to read uh, six verses here really quick. Starting in verse 18 again. O king, the most high God, he gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all the peoples, the nations, the languages, they trembled and they feared him. Uh, Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. Whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven among the children of mankind and he was... Uh, made like his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He fed like grass, like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and he sets over it whom he will. So we have this view of Nebuchadnezzar. You heard the story last week about him rising in power and just being incredibly glorious and powerful and then falling from that glory to be a literal insane animal for seven years. And only once he recognized that God was truly king was he ever reestablished to his prior glory. And when he was reestablished, he praised God in heaven for the rest of his days. So that's one 
like way to look at it. That, that's like one actual healthy perspective on courage. To recognize that you're not king. And that's contrasted with Belshazzar, who saw all of those things happen. He watched it. He got a front row seat to this incredibly powerful king go insane and then come back. He saw it right before his eyes. He knew why he fell. He knew why he was risen. And he chose to hold on to his power. He never let it go. And then you even think about it. Even the way that Belshazzar tried to solve the problem of the writing on the wall, like, like just think back, he offered like money and security and power and royalty. He offers all these things. Basically, what he's saying is the things that make me feel most secure, my power, my money, my authority, I want to like try to use that. I want to return to my source of security in order to reestablish my dominance in my kingdom here and now. That's kind of like how we do things, actually. Like if you have a bad, bad, like, like money lost in the stock markets, you might go to a financial advisor and pay him money so that he can make you more profitable and make sure that you have safe enough money in the future. If you are having a really tough time relationally with some people and you're like, worried about your social stock in relationship to the people around you, you might go and gossip behind their backs so that you look better, right? Like, like we literally use our source of security as currency to get more of it. That's the way that our hearts work. We will do anything to be king over our position and we will do anything to hold on to our power. But guys, the most courageous thing isn't to hold on to your power. It's recognizing that you're not king. The most courageous thing that Nebuchadnezzar ever did is when he spoke from his mouth and he said, the, king, the actual king, it's God. Yahweh is king over all human kingdoms. I'm just here because he's being generous and kind to me. He's given me a good gift. And I'm supposed to rule it well the most courageous thing that we can do in our life is to recognize that we're not king over it. But instead, we have a God who gives really, really good gifts. He loves us a lot, and he gives us everything that actually will bring us towards holiness. But a good God would never give us a gift that would distract us from his glory. He won't do that. And when you begin to be distracted by the glory of your kingdom— you can expect that the writing on the wall is going to come promising its destruction. When you start to think, you know what? Actually, money is a lot more satisfying and a lot more safe for me to in, like, invest in than my time sitting on my knees before God. You can expect that there's going to be some financial turmoil to come. And you're not courageous for making more money to save yourself from that problem you're being like Belshazzar. Guys, the uncomfortable truth is that we all love our kingdoms and that the writing on the wall has already been written. We were never meant to be the king of our life and we aren't courageous enough to be really good kings. The scary thing about the writing on the wall is that it's really bad. It says that we actually are all sinful and we have fallen short of the glory of God. That's the writing on the wall for all of our lives. None of us is good enough. 
We're not holy enough. We're not courageous enough. And this comes to, I think, the third and final myth. That as we know what the writing on the wall is for us, the temptation is for us to just believe in ourselves. The third and final myth about courage is that if you believe in yourself, you'll save the day. Courage is believing in yourself. That's the last myth. This is potentially the most dangerous of them all. It's, I think it's the most dangerous because I think it's actually the source of the other two. We're told all the time that we need to continually believe in ourselves and we'll just make it through. We'll fight hard enough. We'll get there. We'll be okay. But guys, believing in ourselves is where we start to think, I can do whatever I want. My courage is my way. I have my clear path forward. I don't care about what God's idea is. Believing in ourselves is when we start to think that we actually should be king, that we should be in charge, that the power should be ours, that the comfort should be ours. Believing in ourselves leads us to fall into the first two myths really deeply. The thought that we can direct our own destiny and that our courage is best and that our power is the best thing for us. But guys, that's, that's just not true of us. We aren't that good of kings. The writing on the wall is already in. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And every time we try to be king, every time we grab for power, we're just reinforcing the truth of that statement. We're just reinforcing the nature of our sin in our hearts. And it proves to us that we actually need a greater source of true courage. Courage doesn't come from within. It's not from just believing in myself more. We actually need more than just an external example, too. We need a transformation. True courage comes from having an example of courage and a new source of courage. And that example and source is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the example and the source of courage for all of us. I just want to read an excerpt from Philippians chapter 2. You can turn there if you'd like to. It's going to be verses 5 through 12. It's potentially one of the most famous hymns or songs that's written into the New Testament. And this is... This is what Paul tells us to do. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Guys, we have the perfect example of humility and the perfect example of true courage in Jesus Christ. And more than that, he actually empowers us to then walk in true courage because we now have a true king who's actually king over our lives. He's a better king than you and I could ever be. You see, he didn't grasp that power when he saw himself as being equal to God. He surrendered it. He didn't fight for his personal temporary interests. He fought for ours. You see, Jesus, the true king, was dethroned when he was placed on the cross. He was dethroned for you and for me. It's his kingdom. It's his world. It's his creation. And yet he sacrificed himself for us. 
He went up there feeling totally insecure. He was separated from the Father. He was penniless. All of his friends had left him. All of his source of power, he had surrendered. That's true courage. And he did it for us. That's the best news you'll ever hear. That we have a God who loves us so much that he would actually send his own son to die for us. And that Jesus would be a true king. But the story doesn't end with Jesus dead hanging on a cross. It, it ends with actually God elevating Jesus to true kingdom, to the true kingship. Did you notice in here it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow? You see, Belshazzar's knee bowed to Jesus. It just wasn't when he was alive. It's going to bow one day when Jesus returns. We all have an opportunity to bow our knee to Christ. We can do it today, or we can do it at the end of our lives after we've been king, after we've had our way, and we've seen the destruction that comes. I want us to bow our knee today. If you've never trusted in Jesus as the true source of courage today, please bow your knee to him. Worship him as king. Surrender your life. And then for us who have followed Jesus, who have tried to consistently bow our knee to him, let us never stop. We're forgetful people, eager for our own power, super excited to be the ones in control. Guys, true courage is remembering that the kingdom isn't actually yours. And now we can do that because of Christ. I just want us to think about what it would look like for a moment if your life wasn't determined by your vain pursuit of your own kingdom. If your worries for money, they just faded away. If you could actually just love your family out of a genuine sacrificial desire to serve them and not because you wanted to control them to your likings. Passive-aggressive tensions would release a desire to worship Jesus for his glory and for his name's sake would actually change everything about your life. Imagine what this church would look like. Imagine the way that you could serve and fight for the injustices in Boone. That's the kind of thing that Jesus calls us towards. Jesus is a really, really good God and a perfect king. And we can trust him. He would never give us control over something that would destroy us. So when he does give us control over them, we can trust that he's actually providing for us in the midst of our, of our trials, in the midst of our true worries. He loves us and he makes us truly secure. And one day he's going to return. Every suffering, every pain, every hurt, it's going to be gone because we're going to be in the throne room of Jesus Christ, bowing our knees to him in true glory. That's the future we have to look forward, and that's the kind of source of courage that we all need today. Let's pray that that would be the kind of life that we live. Lord, I, I pray that today we would um, see the warning of Belshazzar's uh, vain pursuit of power and glory, and that we would be reminded that actually you're a better king. That when I want my security and my clarity and my future, 
It's actually better for me to not have the answer and to have you as king than to have the answer and have no king. Jesus, you are so good to us. And we love you and we thank you. And we, we remember your sacrifice for us on the cross. And we want to worship you today because of that. So in your name we pray. Amen.